This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Saika Chaudhry, Executive Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and a Professor of Management here at Wharton. Just as a reminder, we're live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and the show replays a few times throughout the week. Our show focuses on how established companies can remain innovative and handle disruption challenges. We bring in executives, industry experts, and academics as our guests to provide insights from their experience and work with us. If you have any comments or questions during today's show, just give us a call. The phone lines are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Coming up in just a few minutes, I'll be joined by one of the most successful women to rise through the ranks of corporate America. Beth Comstock spent two decades at General Electric to become the company's first female vice chair, She's the author of the new book, Imagine It Forward, about how to make sense of continual change and disruption. So we look forward to having her on the show. And later on, I'll speak with Mir Imran, a prolific healthcare innovator and entrepreneur who's been developing and commercializing breakthrough medical devices for more than 30 years. So that's very, very exciting, and I look forward to those guests But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about some current events around the world of innovation and innovation management, because it's sometimes useful to reflect on what's going on in the world. And since we think about these topics here at the Wharton School, we thought that uh, we might share some of the insights and thoughts and reactions to current news that's going on. One piece of uh, insight that I really learned from recently is that the Forbes magazine, they had a list of the world's most innovative leaders come out very recently. And what's interesting about this list is that leadership is often an ill-defined term, but it can be defined in various ways. So some colleagues, Jeff Dyer, who's at uh, Brigham Young University, and Nathan Furr of INSEAD, Business School in France and in Singapore, they develop a measure for what's called innovation capital. And it's a combination of different strengths, but basically it has four essential aspects to it. The reputation for innovation, the social connections and networks, the track record for value creation in terms of market value, as well as investor expectations in terms of the premium that their company's valuations have. And this top 10 list just came out. Uh, Forbes is going to actually publish the most, uh, the 100, the top 100 list in 2019. But I wanted to just read out who these leaders are according to this measure and then comment on it. The first is Jeff Bezos from Amazon. Second is Elon Musk from Tesla. Third, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook, Tim Cook uh, from Apple's fourth, fifth, Satya Nadella from Microsoft, sixth, Mark Benioff from Salesforce, seventh, Shantanu Narayan from Adobe, eighth, Reed Hastings of Netflix, ninth, Jeff Weiner from LinkedIn, and tenth, Larry Page and Sergey Brin from Alphabet, Google, however you want to look at it. 
What strikes me about this list is probably will strike you as well is that all of them are fairly new and recent companies and come from a related set of sectors around the world of information technology. And so on the one hand, it may not be a surprise that we see these kinds of leaders profile. They're certainly doing exciting things and led to a lot of uh, growth. What would be interesting, though, is that this is a very short-term measure because it looks at three years. And I wonder if we looked at innovation over a longer time period, then how some of these companies would fare. Some of them didn't exist for a very long time period. But what we might see is the likes of a 3M or perhaps a GE, notwithstanding its troubles, some of the pharma majors uh, and uh, other companies in the auto sector might also rise to the fore fear because of the fact that they've innovated and adapted in the long run. And so that's quite exciting and interesting to look at. So I encourage my colleagues to look at those things. And I encourage you to also think beyond the most obvious list of leaders and think about what else might be out there as well. The second piece of news that I wanted to comment on, and I guess the next two have to do with mergers and acquisitions in the industries um, that are pursuing a lot of technology and innovation. Uh, M&A is a very powerful strategy for promoting innovation through external means. Sometimes for an established player, it's not always sensible to do things internally. There's a decision that has to be taken on internal growth strategies, alliances and partnerships, as well as acquisitions and where one might make sense over the other. So an equally valid and very powerful, but also risky strategy is to buy companies. And so there are two interesting developments on that front. One concerns something very close to our heart, which is Sirius, which has bought Pandora in a $3.5 billion deal. Now, I want to move a little bit beyond the stock market reactions, which have been negative for both sides, to actually think about a little bit, well, how could this be a tremendous opportunity? Um, I think there are a lot of interesting potentials here. The first is on the strategy side. Sirius is a company that's done really well in terms of satellite radio, has consolidated the market. But at the same time, there's room to really push in the streaming areas, which are clearly important, so from that point of view, Pandora obviously offers an exciting opportunity, especially in the music space. Now, Pandora, of course, has struggled for the last few years because it was a pioneer in the area. But some others, such as Spotify, for instance, uh, have really been much more aggressive in, in pushing out that streaming agenda and getting rights to music and so forth. But I think with the combination, with Sirius's funds and experience and reach and marketing prowess too... There's a real opportunity here for the combination to come out and become another formidable player in the market. Now, what's important is really that's going to determine the outcome is how this is managed because it's, quote unquote, easy to pay for a set of assets or, or talent and making these acquisitions. What's a lot more difficult is to be able to integrate them appropriately, to have the right people in place for the right areas. Clearly, there are different sets of expertise that are at play here with Pandora understanding the music business, Sirius generally in the radio business. And so it'll be important not just to take this as, hey, here's some resources from Sirius, go see what you can do, but bring the power of both to bear in this context as well. So I'm very curious to see what happens, but I think we should give the deal a shot, especially now that it's been done. I think there's a lot of potential opportunity if managed well. The third news item I wanted to comment on, another M&A transaction, is that um, you've probably heard over the summer that Disney was able to buy 
21st Century Fox, but they were also in a bidding war with Comcast for Sky, the British pay TV company, which is incidentally also owned by Rupert Murdoch, who's behind 21st Century as well. That resulted in a, that was really part of a a two-year-long bidding war between the two sides until the competition authorities in England decided, you know, we have to bring this to a close. And what they did was they asked for a, a very, very concerted and concentrated auctioning to take place. At the end of that, the higher bidder was Comcast. Now, this is really interesting for a number of reasons. The first is that uh, bidding is becoming increasingly common in industries that are consolidating, like in media. Now, it might be, on the one hand, attractive to win a bidding war. On the other hand, you end up paying a very high price, a very high premium. That puts pressure on the eventual acquirer to actually gain the synergies to be able to make the deal successful. So what will really matter here is Comcast's ability to leverage its European customer base and be able to actually perhaps get some new technologies and some resources to be able to make it work from them and garner sufficient synergy. It's not nearly merely about owning these assets in different markets because then the premium would not be justified. Now, the implications for Disney are also important to think about. This would have been a global push that Disney could have done, but they're already a very global company. So that's something which is important to keep in mind. But Disney has its task and work cut out, which is why I think that it may not be bad not to be doing two major acquisitions, even though there's a linkage between 21st Century Fox and Sky, obviously. But Fox, 21st Century Fox is uh, is also a big acquisition. And Disney will have to look at not only owning that, but really use this as a platform for using the content to get into streaming even more strongly to rival the likes of Netflix. The integration becomes important. Who heads which areas? That's absolutely critical in this case. And again, integration. Integration really involves thinking about three aspects, people as well as processes, um, as well as the assets and bringing together all three in order to make the deal successful, it will be a medium or longer-term endeavor nonetheless. So let's follow that and see how it goes. All right, for those of you tuning just in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio on Sirius XM 132. I'm Saikat Chaudhary, Executive Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and a professor here at Wharton, and I'm thrilled to welcome to the show Beth Comstock, GE's former Chief Marketing Officer and the first female employee to hold the position of Vice Chair. She's been nearly three decades. She was at 3GE, and Beth, in that time, led efforts to accelerate new growth and innovation in a variety of different ways. She was part of NBC Universal. She looked at TV ad revenue and digital efforts there, including the early development of Hulu.com. Prior to that, she held a succession of roles at NBC, CBS, and CNN Turner Broadcasting. Beth is also a director at Nike and a trustee of the National Geographic Society, and most recently the author of a new book called Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. Beth, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you. I uh, I do see your posts sometimes on LinkedIn as well, and uh, it's great to see all of that. Today, it's wonderful for us and our listeners to have an opportunity to have a conversation with you. So I very much look forward to that. I want to start with thinking about the company that you spent so much time with, GE. GE is a company, and as you know, we focus on incumbents in this firm, which has successfully adapted and reinvented itself over so many 
decades. We'll come to the current issues in a bit, but I first want to focus on the success success story that is GE. How has GE been so successful throughout its history? Well, I think um, that's one thing that often you know gets gets lost in in just the swirl of there's so many great new companies that are coming out. We often take for granted the companies that have been around for a while. Mm-hmm. You don't get to be a hundred and twenty five thirty year old company without going through some ups and downs and you know bouncing back. And um, you know every company has a history and they're they're still around to tell it. So I think there's a resiliency that comes from these companies where um, where they're able they're hopefully they're plugged into markets. They, they're able to see change early and adapt to it. Um, that's what keeps them around so long. And with GE, you know, how do you think they were able to adapt and reinvent themselves? We hear a lot about, you know, the legend of certain leaders that have been in place, and that's certainly part of the story. Is it something about how GE's strategy has evolved, its organization that you think has contributed to its ability to, over time, successfully adapt itself? Yeah, well, I um, I mean, I think I, I think clearly you need leaders at the top, but I sometimes think that also gets overrated as yeah. just one person, just one soul, usually a man, <laughs> there and has has all the ideas, and everybody just marches forward. It clearly doesn't happen like that. Um, it's a lot of people who um, who see better ways. They're living with their customers. They see problems. Um, they they you know kind of stealthily make things happen. I was fortunate to work. Um, at the end of my time at GE with uh, the GE lighting business, the oldest business, yeah. and, you know, that we've seen the incandescent light bulb die. And, um, you know, but at, at meanwhile, back in the 90s, there was a stealth little group of rebels who said, hey, the future, we, we think that light bulb's going to go away. Um, the future's LED. And they just kind of, on their own, created their own little skunk works and found a way to keep iterating the technology. Eventually, some rebel managers said, hey, you know, we're going to look the other way. We've got to make the quarter, but we're going to look the other way and make sure these guys get funded until by the time I came to work with them, it was a billion-dollar revenue business. Yeah. So I think that that has to still exist within every company, that there are these kind of rebel agitators for a better way who just make it happen. And then it becomes so real, you can't ignore it. So there are these champions which are there. GE's been known to be extremely decentralized and uh, have all these different businesses and different people doing what um, they want to pursue, but at the same time with some controls. And how do you balance this? Having centralization, you know, in some respects, decentralization in others, some autonomy, yet some oversight. How does one achieve that balance? Yeah, I think it's one of the, the essential questions of, of business these days, especially with the more distributed, digitized world we live in. Um, people have to have autonomy, um, yet there needs to be some kind of core framework. I mean, why do we all exist together? Um, what, what's, what, what's our purpose? Um, what's the strategy? I mean, you know, you can have great ideas, but if it doesn't match the strategy of what, what, what the company's trying to do, why should the company be investing? I think that's where people fall off sometimes, is mm-hmm. they're wasting their time on energy on things that may not be mo- moving the company forward. For example, if I decided to go in and, you know, spend all my energy creating a GE ice cream, mm-hmm. um, that's might be a great idea for ice cream, but probably not a good idea for GE. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. So I think what companies have to do is be very clear on their strategy, which has to evolve. Um, I always like that idea of a freedom within a framework, mm-hmm. where you're, you know, here's kind of the frame, the core tenets, the values, the strategy, 
Um, and then within your business, your industry, your geography, you have to have the freedom to adapt and make it work there. Um, we did that with, you know, the digitization of industry. There were core things that everybody had to kind of sign up to. Yeah. And yet there were things so that if I was in aviation, I could apply it differently to airline customers versus hospital customers. And I think com- companies fall apart with their efforts when they try to centralize too many things. It doesn't allow for adaptation. It becomes bureaucratic. Yeah. Or too decentralized, you you miss resources. You 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 lack a speed to learning. I think one of the great things about um, the multi-company model that GE had was we saw patterns and we saw things emerge often ahead of our competitors because mm-hmm. we saw where things were alike. So it, you know you don't have to have multiple industries to do that. But are you maybe it's mul- multiple customer segments? Just are you doing enough to do the pattern recognition so you can adapt faster? So can you give us an example? What's your biggest uh, success story that you've observed? It may be you, it may be colleagues that did it at G. I'm very curious to uh, hear more about these examples that you're referring to. Yeah, well, I think um, one that I was very passionate about, was very close to, um, would have been um, looking at the evolution of clean technology at a time in industry when clean tech was seen as something that didn't apply to industry. Yeah. Um, yet we were seeing patterns where, one, European customers in multiple industries, so railroads, airlines, energy companies, were saying, hey, regulation is changing. Um, we need different technologies to compete. Um, and you started to see these patterns where different industries were saying, we need, this, we need a, a cleaner technology future. And so by seeing that, you say, hey, there's a bigger trend here. It's not just the utility companies that are facing this. It's actually now three or four different industries. So what can we do to innovate? Is there a core kind of innovation that we can drive? And so for us, it became a platform. We called it Ecoimagination. Mm-hmm. It had a cute name but a very serious intent. And um, we set out to you know, spearhead some innovations and some investment in technologies and new ways of working with customers. And, you know, it was interesting. We never imagined that that innovation, the clean tech innovation, would necessarily be relevant in financial services or hospitals. Yeah. But pretty quickly, people in those businesses said, wait a minute, my customers have this problem too. Hospitals need to generate their own energy. They want to be better. They want to use, you know, energy more efficiently. Or, hey, my franchisees at Wendy's, in the case of GE Capital, they need to ha- better use their energy, too. Can we help them? So by seeing those patterns and seeing examples, and they were able to grab into them and sort of bring them to new industries. That's a good example in my mind. That's very nice. I mean, you, you really, I like how you referred to the product process model and presumably also business model innovation and also the synergies that can be generated across a large conglomerate, even if you have a lot of autonomy. Yeah, I see that. You know, I don't think it has to be a conglomerate. I mean, I, I see this in... So many companies, I, I, even small companies that are just starting to scale where yeah. before you know it, you're functionalized around different customer segments. You know, oh, we're the government segment and you're the consumer segment. Uh, maybe you're fundamentally selling the same thing. And before you know it, you're defined by your difference yeah. as opposed to, well, what what are the government customers seeing that might inform what my consumers want to see or vice versa? So I think we... Um, my recommendation is always to try to find, you know, these kind of cross-company teams, no matter how small your company is, to try to share the trends and insights and identify some of those patterns earlier. 
makes a lot of sense, really resonates with me. You've talked about the strategic and organizational angles, but one of the things that you often refer to as well is pushing boundaries, changing mindsets, and also affecting cultural shifts. How does one do that in these massive organizations? Well, you, what your gut reaction to do is to just say, well, the boss said so. Yeah. Um, that rarely works. I mean, yeah, the boss needs to say so. The leader of the company is a set of vision. Like, this is the future. Uh, you know, look ahead. We, we see the, di- the digitization of our industry is coming. So it needs to be communicated. Mm-hmm. Just because the leader at the top says we're going here doesn't mean people accept it, want it, or will make change happen. Uh, and I think, again, that's where often companies fall apart is it's just they think, well, you know, I'm going to tell everybody to do it. Yeah. There's often strands of resistance because when you're going to the new, um, it's ambiguous. Yes, you I was going to get to that. Yes. Behind, right, all those things. So I'm, I'm a big believer in, um, one, it is that vision setting. I think you have to have a story, a vision. But I'm a big believer you have to give people um, opportunities to experience those things that are changing and figure out how to change their workflow, what they do um, on their own. So often you're setting up these labs, these spaces for people to try things, test them with customers, say, ah, I'm gonna, I see my own adaptation on this, mm-hmm. as opposed to one cookie-cutter way of doing it, which, again, we do wrong. So really it's mindset shift, as you said, but people have you have to give people a way to get comfortable with it, and find their own method of adaptation. It may take a little bit longer up front, Mm -hmm. but I guarantee you people who can have sort of been given the permission to grab agency and given the space to test it in their own way will adopt it much more deeply. So it's some sort of combination of setting a vision and providing the opportunity for people to really go and, and get exposed to these things. You make it sound so easy, and I have yeah, no doubt you really were good easy, at those things. <laughs> what do you do when you meet with the resistance, that inertia that we always see? And, you know, that inertia comes for good reasons. There's been, let's say the company's been very successful for a while, and then, you know, people wonder, you know, why should we change things? Yeah, and often the successful meaning there's profit, um, there's continued growth, and suddenly you're, you know, you're taking resources away from what's working and putting it on something uncertain. Yeah, that's you're you're crazy. So, you know, I do think um, part of wh- why you know I'm I'm big on these kind of testing things in a small way before you scale it up big. Yeah, so I do think creating those spaces where you can test things. Um, so, and again, you know, I, I I think you need to invite that those critic those critics in. Um, allow people who are critical of it, um, the opportunity to express why. I mean, they often do it from a good reason. It's not just because they're negative neds or something. I mean, those negative people exist, but often it's because, hey, I actually have some expertise, and I think I can contribute to it. So I think you have to invite those critics in, listen to them. Um, You know, we say things like defy convention. Well, sometimes there's actually a reason it's convention. And so do you understand that? Do you understand what's important about it? Um, too often we want to change just for change's sake. My other thing is I find culturally um, when you're leading new initiatives and driving change, you get so excited about what's new and next. And before you know it, you're, you know, you're kind of the cool kids. Like, hey, we've seen this new land and you haven't and we're cool and you don't know it. And who wants to work with people like that? Yeah. Um, as someone who's done that, painfully learned, <laughs> you have to spend a lot of time bridging that. And it's back to what we talked about earlier. But um you know, don't assume people are stupid or don't assume people don't get it or they don't want to change. 
they need to be heard. You need to, they, you know, but at the same time, you do need to move people forward. I'll give you a good example. Yeah. Um, I remember when we were introducing something like 3D printing uh, in, into our manufacturing space. And at the time, it was, it was very, it was small toys. They were printing in plastic, and people were pl- printing like tchotchkes and keychains. And if you're, um, you know, an aircraft engineer, you'd look at that and you'd go, that's a toy. Yeah. Um, which it was. But what we did is we just put 3D printers around in sophisticated engineering pot teams. We just let them figure it out. And what you see are kind of a dynamic where there's always an early adopter group. Yeah. And they're critical. Like, they are curious. They want to figure it out. Give them some incentives. We had, like, a little gaming device, and they kind of challenged each other. And then there was a middle group that's skeptical. Mm -hmm. Like, interesting, but i got to see it to believe it. And so they needed that group to prove it. Then there's another group that's just not going to change. And so you have to decide as an organization, does everybody need to change at once? If not, can I assign those people who are less curious now about this or less hesitant to change their way to maybe an area where they don't need to change as much now and we need to work on getting them ready? Or unfortunately, some people may have to go. So I think that's part of the process you're working through. But don't assume that everybody is, you know, a dope in the beginning and they just don't get it. Um, They need space. You know, I think that's a fair assessment, and sometimes I worry about Silicon Valley these days because it's it, it's becoming a bit of insular, a bit insular in mindset that everything else is not good and whatever happens there is good, and we've seen those kinds of things before. Oh my gosh, I so share that with you. I, I was at a software conference recently, and a Silicon Valley leader um, said, "I I never hire anyone from a, a, an established company at a senior level. They they're just they're not good for our culture." They might not be hiring the right people. And so just by that sheer, you know, spot of, like, there's no one who hasn't grown up in this kind of software startup that's going to do well here, they're missing a huge opportunity of intellect. Yeah, they may need to help them figure their way out, but, wow, just to say that, and I, I see that happening more and more, I think. That's very powerful. I'm glad we share that view. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio on Sirius XM 132. I'm Saika Chaudhary of the Wharton School, and my guest is Beth Comstock, who was the GE former vice chair. Beth, uh, you're you're talking about a lot of interesting things. One thing you, you mentioned is storytelling, vision setting, communication. All of that is very, very important. How does one become a good communicator and tell a good story? Especially when it involves painful change. No, it is. It's exactly it. I mean, one, I think you just have to channel your passion. If you see a better way, hopefully you're passionate about it. That's why you're backing it. (laughs) So I think you have to be passionate. Um, You have to tell that story over and over and over again. You have to get feedback. Like, is is this resonating? I I always like to start with a few simple questions so that your story is more focused. Yeah. You know, what is it? Can you tell it simply? You know, that so simply that a five-year-old would understand it. Um, I'm an alien from another planet. I've just found this idea. Explain it to me in a way that I understand. Yeah. Um, why is it relevant to me? No, okay. I remember trying to, coming back like, hey, we were talking about driverless cars, and people like, but we don't make cars. We make planes and trains. Okay, but play it forward. Autonomous autonomous vehicle someday it's going to be an autonomous plane we almost have those already autonomous train you know so you have to play a role uh, make it relevant and play a translator role which often i think we don't do 
um, and um, and you have to you have to keep refining the story over as you get more feedback, and it has to be told in a way that other people can add to it and make it their story too. Um, so those would be a couple, you know. And then I guess the last thing, in addition to being relevant, is you know what's the outcome. Um, and finally, I think if there's a personal story, a personal impact, yeah. personal reflection. People resonate much more to the personal than the logical, and too often we want to, it's going to save us 25% fuel. Okay, great, but you mean maybe I can get to see my grandmother more often? Okay, that I remember. Yeah, I love that. I, it reminds me of, you know, I heard um, Bob Iger from Disney once explaining the Pixar acquisition, and he talked about, he made it into a story of how he talked to Steve Jobs after getting the job and uh, and then did the deal, but in it, he was actually very systematic and thoughtful. It's just he conveyed the message very differently. He touched upon all the points I would have asked about the strategy, how much he paid, how to integrate, and why put certain people in charge. All of it was covered, but in a beautiful story that let people relate to it, and that really resonates with me. It's very, very powerful what you're saying here. Now, one of the things that coming that's coming out here is that clearly if you want change, if you want innovation, if you want growth – you need to have some slack in the organization. You need to have some room to experiment. It's not all about efficiency. And how do you justify that in the organization with a quarter-to-quarter type of pressure that companies often face? Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the essential questions of our time in business right now. I say, how can you not justify it? Yeah. Um, you know, optimize today is what you need to do in business, but you also have to build tomorrow. And too many companies, I think, well, we're just going to acquire tomorrow. Uh, I've looked at, I, I've spent 25 years working in business. I've seen acquisitions that went horribly wrong yeah. for many of the same reasons. And the business plans are never as clean as we think. The cultural integration. So it's not necessarily a given that you can just acquire your way to the future either. Um, and I don't know why you wouldn't want to be continually understanding what's new and what's next. And setting up, uh, I, I think you need to just set up a, a different lane in your organization, a different part of your company that um, that is looking at what's new and next. It often has different kinds of people who are okay with ambiguity. They're okay mm-hmm. without the certainty. They, these are people who love nothing more than seeding an idea and helping it get to launch. They don't want to operate a billion-dollar profit business. They want to keep seeding, and we often ignore those capabilities. I think there is a very disciplined way to allocate capital. Yeah. And I, I actually often lament that we don't have more innovation and finance teams and even investors together excited about this because really if you're a CFO, you should be asking your innovation team, how efficient are you with testing ideas? How mm-hmm. many, what's the, quote, throughput of ideas? What's the least amount of money you can spend testing the most ideas to give me confidence that I should give you more money? Um, And I'd say that's something I feel like I learned a lot from hanging around venture capitalists who are very disciplined. Now, there's a lot of things wrong with that model, too, but Mm -hmm. certainly in discipline about making sure, you you know, there are certain milestones and accomplishments before someone gets more money. Um, It's a very disciplined way, and I, I think that investors should be quite comforted by that, but I'm not sure they ask that enough, and I'm not sure that's part of the measurements 
uh, it's almost like you need two tracks of measurement in understanding the, the company it's now and its future. Yeah, I, I, I like that, you know, because there's a trade-off between the short and long-term. And like you pointed out, you know, I mean, oftentimes people see acquisitions as a short-term fix, but acquisitions can be useful, but they're hard to integrate. But, um, you know, the internal side also can't be neglected. And all of this requires foresight and a portfolio approach in a reasonable way. And, uh, you know, speaking of that and looking forward a bit, GE's currently, and you mentioned it as well, going through certain challenges um, what are your thoughts on how these are being handled and the future for GE? Well, look, GE is a great company. I was proud to work there for as long as I as I did, and I, I worked there for as long as I did because it was such a great company. But um, a couple of things, uh, you know, again to what we said earlier, every company has cycles. Yeah. Um, the questions I think we all should be asking. I'm no longer at GE, but I'm still a shareholder. I think the questions are, what's the vision for the future? I think any company in transition has to be able to say. Okay, we're, we're, we're having a reset moment, um, but here's where we're going. Um, I think people underestimate the complexity of some of these uh, more established, but especially companies at, at huge scale. Mm-hmm. I think this is a question for our newer tech companies that have become very almost monolithic in, in how, how they, you know, their market position. They create huge complexity at scale, yeah. which means it's much harder to pivot. It's much harder to 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 do those resets. In fact, probably unforgiving. It's harder to take risks on things that don't scale big enough, fast enough. Um, so I think that is part of the GE story. Is just huge complexity that had to be worked through. And I think people inside and out maybe underestimated the level of complexity in getting to a new model. And yes, mistakes were made. I think that's the other thing. Do we have room for mistakes? Are we wait, making it such that mistakes are in that kind of you know, space where it's more of the test and learn so that you're not putting all your capital at an idea yeah. um, to at the wrong time. So I think that is also you're building confidence in, in those ideas. Makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, for me and working with a lot of large companies, I think I also tend to gauge how well do companies react to mistakes or crises, yeah. which is very important, right? And, and, you know, we all, t- these days, it's, you know, I feel like I want to put it on some needlepoint pillow, fail fast, fail small, like it's just so easy, and we all just fail and we move on. Failure stinks. And let's face it, most companies don't fail well. They say it. I hear one more company say that's our motto, but they don't do it. They yeah. don't. They don't reward the people who do it. They don't put money against things. Um, there's just a host of things that um, that we're not holding people accountable to for, for the learning of their failure, the speed to speed to react, those kind of things that that um, I find it sort of a myth of innovation, to be honest. No, and that's a that's a very sober way of looking at it, and very pragmatic as well. Really appreciate that. Final aspect I want to touch upon with you is just a quick question on. You know, really, what advice you would give to young women who want to have a career like you? You've obviously had a tremendous track record, but I know it came with lots of challenges and difficult decisions along the way. Part of it was general. Part of it was due to the fact that you were a woman and perhaps, you know, there were some preconceived notions around that or you had certain considerations. What advice would you give? Well, I um, I think just make sure your work's really great. I don't care, you know. Just yeah. Um, if you're if you're being judged by you know perhaps a, a different standard, um, you know they they can't take the work away from you. So I, I, I but you have to work smart. Don't work stupid. Okay. Yeah. So that would be um, the other thing is, um, and this may be surprising for your listeners to hear, but 
as a woman and a woman who was in more creative areas, I was able, with my difference, I was able to be more creative and more openly creative. So I kind of owned it. Yeah. That came with um, kind of getting over some shyness and introversion and confidence issues. That's yeah. a whole other discussion. But I think um, if you lead with difference, it allows you to go into some spaces that um, maybe others aren't. So look at the positive sides of what you can do with it um, and, and you know, fight for people who are different, bring more people along who represent different points of view. Um, that may be a path that is unexpected that is waiting for you. No, but I think that's very, very good advice. You know, we hear lots of advice, but that's a very pragmatic approach. And I think acknowledging who you are, working on your strengths, being able to really take things in stride, I think is really important. There are a lot it's more things. Humor. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> right. And you, you sound, you know, like such a modest person. I'd love to continue the conversation at another time. But of course, I know you have to go. And so I'd like to thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. Great. To, I, my favorite topic, innovation. Absolutely. I hope we have time to continue that discussion later. And uh, we will point everyone to your book and to your LinkedIn feeds, which I personally find very interesting. I'm your host, Saika Chaudhary, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. We'll be right back. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.